2: We acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and waterways, which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today.
1: I ask the Prime Minister, how good is Australia?
0: Please explain here
1: to make a public statement. Look, please. I'm going to uh, shirt front, Mr. I Corton. am a fighter and not a fighter. I don't think I know. And I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Oh, well, fair shack of the sauce
2: bottle, mate. G'day there, Mark Kenny with another democracy sausage from the Australian National University. Joining me, as always, is Dr. Maria Taflaga, Senior Lecturer in the School of Politics and International Relations. Extraordinaire in so many different ways. How are you, Maria?
0: Very well, Mark. How are you?
2: I am going well going well I'm really excited about what we're talking about today actually because we're talking with Hamish Mcdonald who most of our listeners would know he's uh he's a media megastar really he's a, across all kinds of platforms um I listen to him these days of course a lot on on Radio National and he does the project and you know he's really done everything he's one of those guys that as I've said to him before he does his his c v is full of things that seem to belie his years he's probably sitting there blushing as I say all this but um we're talking to him, as we did once before, about his podcast series for the ABC called Take Me to Your Leader, which is a really extraordinary, a great idea, I think, a really extraordinary sort of methodology for getting in and under um, some of the dominant global leaders that we have and, and, and talking to experts, people who know them, sometimes journalists, academics, uh, other politicians in some cases, people who can really illuminate these characters, which loom large in our news feeds a lot uh, and and materially matter for the world and for Australia. But, uh, of course, uh, we don't necessarily understand them at all. People like Erdogan, for example, Tejit Recep Erdogan in um, Turkey, you know, a dominant figure for such a long time. But do Australians have any real understanding of, of who this guy is or whether he's a whether he's a sort of a pioneering democratizer or a or a strongman um, you know he's he takes different positions from um not just from what we might automatically like him to take but even apparently from what he would have taken earlier in his career you know so really interesting to um to yeah, talk to him it's
0: it's a really useful device as well to sort of unpack how different political systems might operate or, or function, particularly ones that, uh, you know, like are not the United States and the UK, which seem to be the ones that most Australians are, are familiar with.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But even there, we don't necessarily know the backstory. I mean, I've read a biography of uh, of Biden, for example, who's one of the people in in the new second series of Take Me to Your Leader. But, you know, very few people would have done that as a, as a sort of proportion of yeah, the Australian absolutely. population. But he's an absolutely critical critical character, particularly with events in the Middle East, but but of course with events in the US and heading into the elections. Um, so uh, might as well stop talking about Hamish and start talking to Hamish. Hamish, welcome to Democracy Sausage. Hi, good to see you both. Good to see you. And uh, so this, uh, this list of leaders that you've gone with, Ursula von der Leyen from the, uh, the European Union, Erdogan, as I said, Vladimir Zelensky, Joe Biden, Emmanuel Macron, who's a... Um, such a fascinating figure. I've, I've got a great interest in him. Bong Bong Marcos from the Philippines. Uh, it's a great list. Um, how did you come upon it?
1: Well, in a sense, we are always kind of trying to get a bit of a, a broad sweep of the globe uh, and, and reflect and represent the different regions uh, and I suppose some of the, the different interesting threads that are unfolding and taking shape in the world today and Sometimes, also, we want to get a bit of spread of the gender breakdown as well, I guess. You'll note that there's not many female leaders uh, running major powers in the world today. Yeah, I was going to say, good luck
2: with that. I'm looking at your list. It's not uh, particularly heavy on women, but that reflects that very fact you're just talking about.
1: And I think, you know, it's actually changed quite significantly even in the last five years. It's not that long ago that... You know, Merkel was running Germany. Uh, Theresa May was in power in the UK. It looked like Hillary Clinton m- might be on track to become the U.S. president. Uh, actually, there's sort of been a drop off, certainly in terms of the major powers. There's still plenty of powerful women. Uh, there's a few female leaders in Scandinavian countries. Uh, Georgia Maloney leads Italy. Sheikh Hasina in Bangladesh. Uh, a couple of female leaders in the Pacific. Uh, one anyway, and and uh, some in the Caribbean. But we asked ourselves the question, who's the most powerful woman in the world today? And so that was how we landed on Ursula von der Leyen, who and maybe we'll get to this later, actually turns out to be this enormously fascinating figure with a kind of blockbuster backstory. Yeah. But I but I guess in kind of landing in a in a list as a whole on a list as a whole, it's what's changing in the world, which are the leaders that are driving that change, which are the leaders that can kind of speak to some of the big shifting tides that we're witnessing unfold right now. And so that's why someone like Erdogan in Turkey is so fascinating. We'd already done an episode on Netanyahu. We'd done an episode on Mohammed bin Salman, the the crown prince of Saudi. Of course, Biden is going to run again. Uh, So whether you like him or find him boring or think he's just way too old, he's the guy that's in charge of the United States today. And there is, I think, a lot more to him than what we see in the the day-to-day news cycle.
2: Yes. Well, in a sense, they'd want to be um, because, <laughs> I mean, I, I actually agree with you. I think that's absolutely right uh, about Biden, but they would want to be because the the, the the sort of shadow of a man that we see stepping up to the lectern, um, you know, gingerly and and, and and sort of slurring his words a bit and, and and, mostly using scripts and then very slowly moving away again, uh, you know, short-stepping it away from the lectern, he, he just does not... Uh, exude the the sort of strength that is normally associated with leadership. I mean his seniority as a long-term legislator, as a senior figure in in in, in um in Washington over a long period of time, his mastery of, uh, of of politics to the point where he's obviously their their candidate, he becomes the president. All of that adds up to a lot of a lot of runs on the board, but there is a mismatch between the image you see of Biden, and that's that would be a lot of what Australians Particularly, have when they when, when they when they think about Joe Biden, they think about this man who is going to be 80, 81 years old during the next election, and who who is visibly right at the end of his of his physical um, capabilities to do that job.
1: There's definitely a question, I think, of vitality, and that definitely is what you think about when you see Biden and and listen to Biden. But I think he's interesting in many ways, and this definitely came out in the episode. Of, a, of the podcast that we did on him, he speaks to or is emblematic, I think, of a couple of things that are happening in the world today. We, know, we all know that this is a time of the populist, that there is great success for the politician that can deliver a simple populist message in these incredibly complicated times. The question, though, is does the populist deliver or does the person that is the kind of more boring operator of the system, deliver the solutions to the complex problems of our time. And I think that's why Biden is kind of interesting, passing a fair amount of legislation. He's clearly someone that knows how to operate uh, the the legislative process in Washington. Uh, But can he cut through the very messy and fractured noise that exists in social media and the media at large to instill in the population confidence in those ideas and the delivery of those policy outcomes? I think that's a separate question, but that's why I think he's kind of interesting. Yeah.
0: I think one of the really nice strong through lines of the series as a whole is... Is a sort of contrast of generations, right? You've got uh, some leaders that have been there for a very long time in, in one function or another, right? Um, sort of towards the end of their careers, and then a lot of sort of new emerging leaders. And it, it does put up this contrast or spectrum that you've alluded to, right? Wisdom on the one side versus rigidity and an unwillingness to change, and for the younger ones, you know, a fresh perspective, a, a, an ability to kind of communicate and see possibilities, but also, you know, potentially dangerous naivete, right? I guess it'd be interesting to know what your sort of reflections on that are, having having done like this this second series but the ones in the first series as well.
1: So I actually think my view on this is evolving somewhat mm. as we do this series because – Someone asked me actually when we launched the first series, why do just the leaders? What does that really tell you? You know, there's obviously some kind of academic arguments and historical arguments that the leader, them, leaders themselves, don't really change much. That events are bigger. The geopolitical tides and sands are changed and shaped by, by I suppose, currents much bigger than just the individual leader. But I think we can all observe that. In different ways, the international systems that have existed and been relatively strong throughout the course of most of our lives are breaking down. And that's in part because the biggest nations, the biggest powers are not instilling in those systems and orders and international bodies uh, the same degree of time and energy and, and money. And so they're just not working as well. We're entering this period of great power competition. And I think actually in that period of change, the leaders themselves do become more more important. And I reckon the leader that stands out to me, certainly from this season on that score, is Zelensky. And obviously we all kind of know the story of him as this comedian actor that took the presidency in Ukraine and then became this wartime leader. There's a very kind of top-line, headline version of his story. But I think actually there is... There was much more revealed to me in the process of making that episode about uh, the kind of combination of the geopolitics as well as the individual, as well as the kind of cultural and historical lens through which you've got to observe the Ukraine conflict. You know, Zelensky didn't really speak Ukrainian until he became the president, and he's really only kind of learnt to speak it properly uh, since the war began and start doing his addresses in Ukrainian. He's Jewish, which obviously is, I guess, kind of noteworthy in the context of the history of of Europe and its relationship with Russia. Uh, And this individual who's clearly charismatic but had basically zero experience and wasn't delivering particularly well as president once he got there, suddenly transforms in a moment through sheer personal grit, through his charisma, through his ability to cut through his... Now, even though he's on the same kind of side as Biden in this conflict with Russia, um, he's almost the antithesis of Biden, young, charismatic, inexperienced, but able to stand up to Russia and actually force the hand of the West, force the hand of Biden. Remember, Biden was kind of offering him a ride out of
2: there. Yeah. He said I didn't I don't need a ride, I need I need I arms. need rockets, man. Yeah. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: I mean yeah, yeah, exactly. Like you've sort of hit upon like an interesting dilemma within, I suppose, the sort of formal study of, of political science and and to a lesser degree international relations, but we are debating in the discipline around like whether or not politics is becoming more personalized, right? Um, you know, we all sort of accept that rules and norms and systems have a huge impact on outcomes but that, that there are sort of structures and forces within those institutions that are concentrating power into the hands of, of individual leaders. And, and it, it could be the case that it sort of has sort of swings and roundabouts over time and that leaders might be more important in times of, of crisis rather than times of, of peace. But I, it, you know, what you were talking about then sort of reminds me of the, the generation of leaders after World War II who were pretty much all octogenarians. Right. Because the, the yep. younger folk had all been discredited by their participation in World War Two on various nasty sides of of the left-right divide and and Europe was led back to peace and democracy by a bunch of 70 and 80 year olds. Um so yeah, like it's it's a it's an interesting kind of flip on, I suppose, the the moral leadership of Volodymyr Zelensky in the modern world and and even to a degree Biden, who brings a mid-20th century sensibility that yet you know, is is refreshing actually because it's so civil and reasonable.
2: Yeah, it is interesting though because, as you say, there was that whole kind of gerontocracy in the sense that sort of led Europe back, and um and it was very much the case in the Cold War as well that you had, you know, particularly in the Soviet Union. I mean, every every couple of years, one of their their, their sort of senior Politburo members or the General Secretary would. Would drop off this oh, mortal yeah, coil and 80s, you know the yeah, yeah. Radio Moscow would sort of play dirgish um sort of classical music for two days to mark the uh, period of mourning and um and another Someone who you know, some new and fresh, young-faced, seventy-nine-year-old would step up to, uh, you know, to do their, to uh, their and stint, drop off, yeah, Andropov yeah. or of yeah. Brezhnev or yeah. Chernenko. There was yeah. a whole series of them, and of course, you know, Reagan was uh, not not exactly a, a spring chicken himself when when he was there. But yeah, it's uh, the, the, to see the U.S. itself, but so sort of controlled really by these two figures who are. I mean, people talk about Biden's age, but Trump's not that far behind him. I he's, mean, he's like
0: three or four years younger. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah, yeah, he he does seem quite a lot more vital. He can still do it's the, just
0: because he's orange.
2: He can still do the demented pointing dance or whatever it's called. <laughs> When he comes out on stage, I bet Whereas Biden when could Biden do it tried, too if he wanted. He can, but it does. It does. It's
0: not very. It's not much gravitas there.
2: Yeah, he has started to resemble one of those Japanese. You know, the, you know the first Japanese robots that they got. The one they got to walk for the first time, and it had this kind of particular padding motion. <laughs> wow, he's so naive. I know. I know. This is
1: Biden you're talking Biden, about. Biden. Yes. It.
2: Yes. Yeah. The way he when he tries to run, it does look very unconvincing.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it is a question <laughs> of vitality, but I also think it's. You know, we are in the, in the communication age. Uh, it's, very, it's a very visual age. Yes. And clearly Trump has mastered the form in a way that few others have. And so I do think, you know, you've got to give Trump, you know, whatever you think of him, credit for being very incredibly gifted at understanding how the news media and social media works and how to capitalise on every moment. Yes. You know, just think about what the next twelve months are going to look like, leading up to to the presidential election. Of course, there's the the criminal matters that Trump is facing and all the court appearances, but you know he manages to use almost every one of them as to a, turns a it to his leader. advantage. Yes.
2: Yeah. Yes.
1: And and that that is uh, you know in a in a way that is genius um no. evil
2: genius.
0: Well, yeah, he's a nice contrast to Zelensky, who's also very gifted in this domain, but for very different Yeah, there's a motives. fair bit more substance about what yeah.
2: Zelensky's dealing with. Can I ask you Hamish did I know that technically he's not a leader, uh Trump, because he's because all of the people you've got are actually chief like government, you know, chief executives of governments as it were. Uh, But did you consider Trump as a possibility? I mean, he's an ex-president. He's at least the the presumptive candidate for the Republicans uh, next time around. Or did you just decide too much is known about him already?
1: Well, we did think about him and we actually took a lot of audience feedback about what people wanted to hear. Mm -hmm. Um, I've got to say not many people asked us to, to do Trump. Um, not that that was the sole factor. It, it was that we wanted to do people that are currently serving. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, I also think the reality is that for us in Australia, there's, there's so much news from America and the UK. Yes. And we did want to use this series, I, I guess, to kind of put some betting underneath a lot of the other stuff that is in the news all the time. Yeah. So I think all of the figures that we've covered, you probably hear about quite a lot. Uh, you know, if you're listening to Radio National Breakfast or kind of consuming some of the, the main kind of news media, you'd be hearing these names crop up pretty frequently but uh, possibly don't know that much about or, or, or maybe if you do know something about them, have a fairly kind of flat or one-dimensional perspective on them. And, and so really what we were trying to do was kind of add layers of understanding so that if you are engaging with the news or hearing about them in the news you've got this kind of backstory that helps you think about it yeah I think now given the situation in the Middle East you know I now think about Bibi Netanyahu with a slightly different lens knowing the backstory of his family situation and you know his brother's loss of life in um, military service, how much that shaped him, how much it was used as a kind of platform for Bibi's return to politics, obviously he's been Prime Minister a number of times now, but also uh, just the role and the intention around coalition building in in Israeli politics that led to these judicial reforms uh, which have consumed so much of Israel's political discourse for the last eight to ten months, uh, which are now being pointed at as one of the reasons that the political, possibly even the military and intelligence leadership of the country was somewhat distracted in the lead up to Hamas's uh, devastating attacks on on southern Israel. So yeah, you... it's,
2: that's a really interesting question in itself. And, of course, the related question is did Hamas also uh... – Take the view that Israel was, you know, divided like never before. You know, there was thirty-plus weeks of of these demonstrations. Um, there were members of Shin Bet and um, and and Mossad and uh, former IDF people who were actually marching, uh, f, you know, f, f, with with the pro-democracy side, uh, clogging the streets of Tel Aviv and other places mm. every week. I mean, it was it, it was an incredibly kind of uh, febrile situation in terms of domestic politics with these sort of right-wing maniacs that that, uh, Netanyahu had done this deal with to form government. Uh, So, yes, there's this sort of element of what were the security forces, was was Israel itself distracted and internally focused, and did Hamas actually read it that way as well and decide this is a good time to strike?
1: Well, I mean, it goes well beyond that also in that uh, so many of the reservists were saying, look, if something happens, we're not going to respond to the call-up. So if you're an opponent... Uh, of Israel, you'd certainly be taking that into account. But I think there's also, uh, you know, there's now discussion in Israel about the extent to which the security forces were being used to uh, protect settlers uh, around mm-hmm. the West Bank yep. uh, in the lead up to the attacks uh, that took place. Uh, I think it's been, you know, fascinating even for me in recent weeks since this started to unfold, how many of the really senior figures. Uh, in Israeli politics and, and the intelligence establishment uh, from from the past are uh, treading this line between the sort of unified response from Israel, uh, you know, the kind of the, the usual coalescence around you know the the uh, re- responsibility to protect and respond, uh, and and the very clear sighted view of Hamas, but then at the same time a willingness to really lay responsibility for some of the factors which led to this at the feet of Benjamin Netanyahu. And when I say that, I'm talking about Ehud Olmert, uh, the former prime minister, yeah. of course, who oversaw Operation Cast Lead. Uh, we spoke to him on breakfast recently. Prior to that, just days after this happened, Efraim Halevi, the former head of Mossad, uh, you know, has been one of the fiercest critics mm, mm. of Netanyahu. Uh, And uh, and even actually something that did jump out to me, I think on the Monday after the attacks uh, occurred, so, you know, within 48 hours, we had Jonathan Konreichus, the IDF spokesman on our end breakfast, and I put to him a question about uh, all of the accounts that we were reading and even some of the, the social media posts we were seeing of Israeli citizens in the hours that these attacks are unfolding, asking questions: Where is the military? Mm. Uh, where is the army? And I said, you know, has has the IDF failed in some respects in its basic duty to protect Israeli civilians and citizens? Uh, and his response was something along the lines of, "Without question, yes. and we will have yes. to investigate that."
2: Yes, I heard that. Yes. Yes, it was interesting, and I noticed Haaretz's uh, editorial, like, about the same time, like within 24 hours, I think, of the attacks, was uh, was editorialising strongly, saying, yes, a national unity government might make sense to deal with this for the sake of, you know, that is a wartime unity government, very tightly limited to just the conflict itself, but also making demands that, I think, Smorotic and Ben-Gavir... Not be part of that cabinet and who are the sort of mad uh, you know sort of ultra nationalist uh, religious uh, sort of zealots that are that have been driving a lot of policy, particularly settler policy um but also that that uh, and the editorial finished off saying and Netanyahu needs to face charges uh, as a result of the um, you know the, the the mistakes and the willful negligence shown in regard to this and all of the policies that they'd been pursuing which were i think they described it as pouring pet maximum amount of petrol on the fire so yes. quite quite bold internal commentary i thought given the trauma that israel had faced at that moment i,
0: I don't think we can um, under underestimate the seriousness of the changes that Netanyahu was pushing through essentially to the judiciary. Like, you know, he was was dismantling an essential pillar of any liberal uh, democracy. You know, his motivations to run um, were not exactly pure, right, because he was facing corruption charges, right? So,
2: And it's not like there's a second chamber. So this is, you know, a unicameral system. um, And, yes, the accountability is – were um, are few and far between, and uh, he was seeking to remove one. Uh, argue, you know, there was. There's some arguments about whether those accountabilities worked perfectly or whether they were sometimes. When used did excessive. they ever? Exactly. When did they ever? Let's take a very quick break. <laughs> can Can we just take a quick break there? Hamish and we will come back to that point you're making.
0: Selling a little or a lot. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.
2: When the wind veered, the smoke was driven backwards, revealing a most amazing scene. Standing columns of fire. To Be Continued is a new podcast that explores the rich world of lost literary fiction from Australia's past.
0: It helps you to understand the way in which knowledge is kind of not something that's out there waiting to be discovered, but it's something that you create. To Be Continued is brought to you by the Australian National University and is available now on your favourite podcast app.
2: Welcome back. Now, Hamish, I cut you off uh, putting that uh, that break in there. Um, you know, this is one of the requirements of, of the business. I, I don't have the slick broadcasting skills that I hear you uh, uh, deploying each morning, but uh, you were going to make a point about Smritich and um, and uh, Itamar Ben-Gavir.
1: Yeah, all I was going to add was that we in that episode that we did on Netanyahu, if you're listening to this and trying to wrap your head around all of the the names and characters and figures and developments in Israeli politics, uh Prior to the these most recent Hamas attacks, um, there was a fairly lengthy discussion about Itamar Ben gavir his history, his record, and why it was his criminal causing, record, as in, yeah, and why yeah. it was causing such consternation, even in the early stages of the, this coalition building that that led to Netanyahu forming government and and then implementing these uh, judicial reforms that have caused so much of the the I suppose distraction in Israel uh, throughout the course of this year.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, it's a good point. And uh, let me let me just go back to just by way of sort of um, uh, going into the second half of this uh, discussion, uh, the whole mechanism, you know, the idea of talking to leaders. So you were making a good point before about how some people might have thought you could look at, systems or whatever, and Maria, you addressed this point as well. It strikes me that the the people themselves are a great window into the way those political systems work. You learn a lot from learning how someone has progressed through it to become the leader itself. That that that's quite instructive from that point of view. It's also extremely accessible. It's uh you know it's a very human way. People like to engage with these things in human ways. And as you say, Maria, um you know it's all very well to talk about rules and norms and structures and and these things, which are in a sense ways of you know sort of baffles really for stopping excessive personalization of, of power. But uh, but at the same time, we, we're seeing this trend all around the world, aren't we? Of of um uh you know. Personalities being key, the sort of presidentialization of politics. We've even seen it in Australian elections.
0: Uh, yeah, exactly, and it is a, a concerning trend, which is linked um, to sort of the sort of populist um, movement. I mean, I guess the one thing I would sort of say about this, beyond what you've already said, is that the, these things tend to come in in cycles, and they tend to they tend to go together. You know, in a loose historical sense, with with you know poor economic times, right, mm. or, or, or crises which often can show this, uh, this sort of a fragility of um, liberal democratic systems that are really dependent on norms, right? I mean, if you don't have norms, you don't have anything, basically. You, and mean, you
2: mean norms of their behaviour or norms of- well,
0: norms well, of the system and yeah. norms of their be- of an individual's behaviour. I mean, a norm is only reinforced and perpetuated if- most actors in that system are are actually following it right and and i mean and what is interesting about leaders and and i think this series actually can demonstrate this is that leaders are like these interesting critical actors that have a lot of scope and capacity to either be bound by limits you know and trump is experiencing the, the harsh reality of institutions hitting back. They're slow, but they hit hard, right? Yeah. But also, right, you know, a leader like Trump or Ursula um, von der Leyen, I think that's how you say her name, like they can also be very creative and stretch institutions, sometimes for ill, sometimes to the good, right, yeah, you know? sometimes
2: for re- for reform purposes to Pre- make them work better.
0: Precisely, yeah. because if if, some, if nothing ever changes, it becomes uh, rigid and, and brittle and and it will shatter.
2: mm Mm, Much like our constitution may. Hamish.
0: (laughs) Well,
1: I think a really simple way of thinking about that very point that's being made is how many leaders can you think of today or in recent history when you cast your eye around Australia and the world, leaders that, that overtly pitch to voters, the system's not great, I'm here to drain the swamp or I'm here to change the system, I'm here to you know, fight against our membership of a particular union and the bureaucrats that are ruining our lives. It's become a, a salient and powerful political message. Yeah. Um, to put it in those same terms, fighting against the norms and actually offering to unpick them or uh, make them work better. Uh, but perhaps the, the only way that they see that many of these leaders of making it better is to actually disregard those norms in some way. And we, replace you know, the norms
0: with themselves. Yeah, well, you know? that's totally. right.
2: And and Morrison's version of Drain the Swamp was the Canberra bubble. And so we got a lot of that sort of talk about it. it was a sort of, a, a I think, a lower energy thing. But the subtext of it totally. was that Canberra is working against you. Canberra has its own self-referential interests and I'm here to represent people in the real world.
1: Absolutely. But if you think about an actual uh, manifestation of that message, it was the decision that was made around the ministries and absorbing the responsibility of those other
0: exactly.
1: portfolios.
2: Yeah, that wasn't exactly that, a norm.
0: Well, <laughs> well no, uh, the, no. I mean it, it, I mean, it is. It's a convention, basically. Right? No, no, no. no is, what yeah. I'm saying, his
2: actions. Not, oh, no.
0: I see. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally.
2: That was norm-busting, yeah. Secret yeah, norm-busting. That's yeah, norm what I'm busting. saying. Yeah.
1: yeah. I just think that's a, that's an actual, you know, tangible bit of evidence yeah, of where someone who sees maybe the problem and the label is put as the Canberra bubble, uh, but actually when it comes to it, someone that's very willing to kind of break from those norms and do something that's actually quite unconventional. They might have a good reason. They might have a good intention behind it. Uh, but, you know, I think without question, there's, you know, there's obviously been a, a great deal of criticism both from within the coalition and outside of the coalition, uh, about those those decisions, not least from the ministers who who thought they were doing their job on their own. Who got
2: usurped? Yes, who got deceived and usurped? But I mean, let's let's be frank about it. The using terms like drain the swamp and uh, the Canberra bubble. They are a shorthand argument for, for essentially stepping outside of norms, for essentially uh, subverting structures and, and overcoming them and, and usually for amassing power. Uh, and yep. those norms are what protect us. Those conventions of behaviour are what protect electors and they yeah. may slow down decision-making in some places. It's they, not
0: always a bad thing, not always often a, a bad good thing.
2: thing. Now, look, Hamish, I want, what I want to do now in, in the time we've got left is because there's just so many fascinating stories in, in here. You mentioned at the start, and I liked the fact that you did because it was one of the things I wanted to go to. And I suspect you too, Maria. And that is Ursula von der Leyen, this great backstory that she has. Do you want to talk about that or do you want to? Uh, have- yeah,
1: love to talk about that. And I, I, in a weird way, I think it's a very natural flow on from the conversation we're having right now because she's actually an example of someone that has kind of risen above the role and almost risen above the norms or has used the norms in a in a. She's made more space.
2: Yeah, yeah, she's rewriting the ambit. Yeah, so Mm.
1: she's the EU Commission President, which is a boring title, but she's loosely referred to as the President of Europe. Obviously, Kissinger famously asked the question, if I want to call Europe, who do I call? There's never really been an answer to that question. Probably it was Merkel for some years. Uh, but there's never been a clear and decisive response to that question. I think if you're a, a world leader today, there is a very clear answer, and it's it's Ursula von der Leyen. And she uh, got to the role, actually not with the backing, really, of her old boss, Angela Merkel. She got to the role with the backing of Emmanuel Macron. Now, this role is effectively the executive that represents all of the member states of Europe, tricky role as you would imagine Mm. but often the big powerful leaders in Europe want someone in this role that is a bit weak because they want to actually manipulate them and in a sense that's how Ursula von der Leyen got there she'd had a career as a domestic German politician she's on the conservative side of politics so she belongs to the CDU the Christian Democrats which was which is Merkel's party, she was seen as a potential long-term contender to replace Merkel. She rose up through the ranks. She was social services and families minister, uh, eventually became defence minister, didn't have a great run as defence minister, and you'll shock horror, um, be surprised to learn that part of what brought her undone there uh, was a scandal around the overuse of government uh, private consulting firms in the German Defence Ministry. Who I guess. And she then kind of bowed out of domestic politics, made a run for the presidency of Germany, which is a a more ceremonial role. Uh, So the Chancellor is the head of government, the president, Mm -hmm. head of state. Uh, uh, She didn't land that and it was really seen that she, that might be the end of her run in German, in politics. And so then out of nowhere, Macron backs her for this, role. However, what we discovered and unpacked when we did this episode is that not only was she from a family, a German, well-known German family, her father was the Premier or Prime Minister of one of the big states. She was also the member of a seven-person family choir that used to sing and appear on German television. Yes, that's
2: right, yes. Uh,
1: She is also the mother of seven. She sleeps in her in a tiny little bureau off her office in Brussels. But on top of all of this... And she's a medical um, doctor.
2: You may have said that already. Yeah, Yeah, physician
1: as well. Um, Her dad, when he was a politician, became a target of the Beta-Meinhof gang, Mm. which was a leftist militia. And as a result of him being targeted, she was also targeted and had received death threats. And so when she was going into university, her family decided that she was going to go and live in another country under a false identity. Mm. So she actually lived um, as under the name, uh, pseudonym of Rose Ladson in London while studying at the LSE. And what was genuinely amazing in the podcast that we, <laughs> episode that we did was that we had um, Jacek Rostovsky, who's the former Deputy Prime Minister of Poland. He served uh, in the Polish government at the same time von der Leyen was in the German government, they ended up in a around a conference table in Davos together one year and he kept looking at her in these meetings saying, I know you from somewhere. I, I swear I've seen you before. And he's asking her all these weird questions about whether she's Prussian or whether she's this and he's trying to, you know, connect the dots in his own mind. They break for lunch, then they come back. And he says, I've I've got it. I know who you are, but I know you as Rose Ladson. <laughs> And she kind of almost fell off her chair. She couldn't believe that he was putting this all together. And so Jacek had lived in London with his mother and they had had someone living in the flat above them at the time and it was this Rose Ladson who was there kind of undercover fleeing the Beta Meinhof gang. And and, and who was so relaxed
2: about it, notwithstanding the circumstance of why she was there and why she was under a false name, she was so relaxed she kept leaving the door open when she came yeah. home
1: so <laughs> so Yatek and his mother got a cowbell and tied the cowbell to the door on a string so that when she was coming and going she'd remember, she'd remember to, shut alert it. To, so, to lock the door
0: i mean what i mean her story um raises another like big theme in your series right which is dynastic power right and and you you see a few manifestations of this in in the series um as a sort of as a sort of force to get someone elected or, or something that sort of shapes their, their political worldview, Like, yeah, can you talk a bit about that? Can you
1: explain a bit what, what you mean by yeah. domestic power?
0: Uh, so, so like, in the case of Bongbong Marcos, the fact that he is a Marcos is a huge uh, boost to his electoral appeal in in one sense. And, you know, it's clearly had an impact in the case of Ursula von der Leyen, but not necessarily in the same way as as for Bongbong Marcos. They're, they're very different political characters.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the, the Marcos thing is so weird. And I think I still, I mean, the episode was amazing, but I still don't think I understand how you flip the family name mm. given the reputation and record of Marcos Senior. Of course, uh, you know, the family bare, fled with allegedly billions of dollars. They never really saw justice. Uh, Marcos Sr. died overseas in Hawaii and then suddenly, you know, Marcos Jr. is back um, running for the presidency and wins.
2: He's back and he's Who's- respectable.
0: <laughs> norms. It's norms. <laughs> Lack of so, them.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, just to sort of tie these conversations in a, into somewhat of a bow, not that they all um, fit neatly, but I think what is fascinating about Bong Bong, Marcos, is that he does appear to be observing the norms more so than his father did. And he's made this kind of pledge that he wants to restore the family's name. Now, what the norms are, I think, in the Philippines is perhaps more loose than what you know there might be in other democratic countries because there's been so many coups and so many changes to to the law, the actual laws. But he does seem to want to observe. Uh, a lot of the both domestic political norms as well as the international norms. It's not as simple as sort of asking the question of whether he's pro-China or pro the United States, but clearly the Filipinos see some virtue in upholding international law given the contest in, in East Asia. Uh, and certainly, you know, countries like the Philippines really have to navigate uh, the whole question of maritime sovereignty very, very carefully. You know they're much closer to it even than what we are. So if you think about the conversations we have about freedom of navigation and the role of China in the in the South China Sea, you know this is very present to them. And you know he does seem to be displaying, you know, a reasonable amount of desire to make considered decisions, uh, justify the decisions to the public, and take part in a kind of responsible, respectful international dialogue around some of the big issues facing his country now is he perfect no uh are there going to be people that say you know there's still issues there there's definitely people that have a view that the marcos family still needs to you know face justice so it's not a simple response but you know, to to the discussion we've been having about norms, I think he's an amazing case study.
2: Yeah, that's right, and it will be interesting to see if that if that continues, or whether it follows uh, some sort of Erdogan type of regression path, um, as has been the case with with uh, uh, some other leaders, including that that one mentioned, uh, in places where they don't perhaps have the established norms that um, that are as robust as as maybe they could be. Just back on the on the von der Leyen point for a moment. Before I want to just go to Maquant as well, but uh, it, it strikes me that, you know, your point, Hamish, about von der Leyen uh, sort of c- coming under the radar, as it were, um, uh, mm. assuming an office or, or, or rising to that office as, uh, as the EU commission perhaps largely because there wasn't a huge amount of uh, interest in having a very strong leader there. Those those major powers, Germany and France in particular, like to swing their own lead rather than be answering to the European Commission. Uh, but um, I wonder if there's a parallel with that that, that, that some of these strong women leaders, these effective women leaders, have got there through that path. And I wonder if there's a parallel also with that tendency in political parties and political systems that are going through a degree of crisis or fatigue, and that's when some women have, as we know in the past, been elevated into those offices. And sometimes they've done surprisingly well. I mean, it it sort of almost reinforces that kind of gendered, uh, the sort of embedded sexism in, 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 Mm. in political culture, and we see women getting there but sometimes not getting there because they are there to do some huge job, but because men have decided, okay, <laughs> we've all had our go, the thing's turning to custard, let's...
0: Yeah, the yeah. glass cliff, as it's yeah, often called. Yeah, the glass cliff, yeah, yes, yes. Yeah.
1: yeah. We need someone to come in and clean the whole thing up. I mean, the point is often made, right, that it's often the female leader that yeah. is brought in to clean up the mess yeah. made by men. And I there's a few examples is, of that in
2: Australia at the moment.
1: Yeah, and... Uh, you, I think one of you made this point earlier about moments of crisis, and I think that is what is truly fascinating about Ursula von der Leyen is that uh, essentially since she became um, EU Commission President, she was faced suddenly with these twin crises, one being COVID and the other being Russia's invasion, full-scale invasion yeah. of Ukraine. And what these two moments demanded really for, some would argue, the first time since the EU has existed in its current form, a pan-European response.
2: Yes, yes.
1: And so that was the moment that she kind of grabbed and didn't deliver necessarily on vaccines perfectly, but there was a a solid pan-European response to procurement and and the crisis more broadly. And and clearly she has stepped up and played a significant role uh, as European leader um, in response to, to Russia there is now some talk that she may be tapped to become the NATO next NATO Secretary-General. Stoltenberg's been in that position now for um, multiple terms. There's just been extended for another year. He's in about the ninth be,
2: year of his five-year term or whatever it is.
1: <laughs> yeah, it may even be more than that. But, yes, yeah. he's been there. He keeps getting extended. At the last summit, he got extended for another year, and there was some expectation that Ben Wallace, the uh, British Defence Secretary, who was quite popular, quite effective, there was some belief that he may get it. I think at the last summit, that didn't get across the line, in part because the Europeans don't really want to award that role to a Brit. After they've and, pulled out. Yep. Well, uh, Indeed. Uh, well, I mean, they haven't pulled out of NATO, have no, yes, Europe, pulled out of yeah. Europe. And uh, uh, and so suddenly von der Leyen is looking like a, a possible candidate and obviously she has the defence ministry mm. background. So, yeah. uh, you know, she this is not the end for her.
2: Well, let us hope not because I think she's been a um, – uh, uh, she's been quite a centrist force, and also, as you say, a very clear moral force in that uh, in that issue with um, uh, European unity around the response to the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, very much uh, interesting that some of your guests talk about her childhood, her adolescence, growing up in in a Germany that has been absolutely wrecked, and being very critically aware i think it was someone described it as you know sort of almost genetically aware of the the crimes of germany that very much influenced the way she responded instantaneously and viscerally to the invasion you know to another land invasion in europe uh, and and what that meant so um, I think uh, it'd be it'd be very interesting if she's able to take on that NATO, NATO spot. We'll have to watch that one. Can we just quickly, in the last few minutes, turn to Macron because I, he's a fascinating character. I, I I'm sort of, I mean, he's talked about as if he's quite seductive. I'm kind of seduced by him myself, I must admit. Although some of my <laughs> French friends think that he's appalling. Um, you know, they, they yeah, well, think he's, he's a
0: center right guy. I mean, you know, it's, right well, yeah.
2: he, yeah, I think it's, I think that's a fair description of him, although he didn't really arrive as a center right guy. He arrived really as a center
1: guy. Would you agree with that, Hamish? I think his pitch was center, yes. And remember that he came to running for the presidency after having served in the cabinet of, uh, cabinet of Francois Hollande, yeah, who was a socialist president. Yeah. So I think. Uh, I think what has happened, though, over time, because remember he's run against Le Pen uh, twice, uh, in a sense having the far-right candidate uh, end up being really his main threat. Yeah, it does
2: tend to drag Uh, one across.
1: Possibly that's dragged him slightly Mm. to the right. Of course, his background is as a banker. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's wanted to play a fairly significant role on the international stage. Uh, I think, to his credit, probably in the wake of Merkel leaving office in Germany, he probably has emerged actually as the main or the primary, uh, you know, individual leader of of any European country. There's no way I think that you compare Olaf Scholz. No, um, to Macron's standing on the international stage. That's true.
2: But if 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 she if she underplayed her hand a bit, that is uh, Merkel, uh, Angela Merkel uh, at times was was overly conservative at times, he's actually overplayed his hand uh, in some cases, particularly his visit to China. Um, Yeah. Arguably, I mean, he certainly raised a lot of eyebrows with his visit to Moscow as well. You know, there were sort of mumblings about Neville Chamberlain and and the like at the time, (laughs) uh, pleading with a despot not to uh, to do it, only to be ignored. Um, Yeah. But nonetheless, uh, yeah, I think that's probably right, but it's a, it's a more contested leadership than you would have necessarily said of Miracle um, at her peak.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but I think, you know, certainly his childhood, his relationship with his family, his grandmother, you know, if you do want the backstory, it's all there. Yeah. Uh, I think it's definitely shaped him, even some of the kind of threads around him and his relationship with his wife who was – uh, you know, a teacher, when he was at school, a controversial relationship. We don't try to delve too much into the the kind of gossipy end of, of of the personal stories, but clearly his partnership with his wife is a huge feature of his life and his leadership. And even I suppose the genesis of that relationship has has shaped some of the way he approaches life and the world, and you know his ambition in, in many ways, in his kind of um, chutzpah, I suppose, in terms of even you might argue, foreign policy and some of the things that he has tried to do, but enormously polarising. And there's, a, you know, one of the participants in that episode is Stephen Brady, who was Australia's ambassador to France when uh, the uh, submarine deal was done, not when it was pulled apart, but he's got some incredible stories about the way in which the whole submarine thing unfolded uh, and some pretty strong views about the way it unfolded. It, or sort of was it was unpicked in the end, uh, and also about what the replica, repercussions are, which I think jumped out to me. Mm. He's of the view that actually Australia's free trade negotiations with Europe are in part being held up because of the French because of institutional memory uh, around the, the whole submarines matter.
2: Yeah, what did he say? Something like um, European diplomacy has a memory.
1: Yeah, I think he said that there's a sort of institutional memory yeah. there. Yeah,
2: um, and that its uh, it, it's ramifications show up in a, in, a, in a greater resistance, a greater sort of unwillingness to compromise in those negotiations <laughs> because Don Farrell right. at one stage was the trade minister, our trade minister was signaling that we were right on the cusp of of a deal there and and then it's it's all sort of uh, sort of unravelled.
0: And that's a long-standing French tactic. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. I, mean, I I I think I remember covering uh, a the Canadian trade deal with the European Union and they were like it ended up being a story about one particular group of farmers, either in Belgium or a particular corner in France, and it was like the whole thing mm. was being held up by this this one particular cohort and interest group um, that had a problem with the with the trade deal. And you know, given the, the the way the European Union works, that matters.
2: Yeah, it does. I mean, you don't have unfettered access That's to being, to calling cheese feta. Yeah.
0: yeah, exactly. You know, so many different varieties. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. yeah. Um, Hamish, thanks so much for 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 uh, uh, coming on to talk about this. Uh, I think people will have had their appetites wetted and will be wanting to go and listen to these. They yeah, they, they should.
0: It's it's a great series. Yeah, they're
2: standalone episodes, so you can you can put them on, and they are really. I, I think congratulations on it because not only is it a great idea, but I think you've. Gone and got some really terrific talent. Some really good people to to um, have have good discussions and have discussions with each other. And you could you could really get a sense of the, even the participants learning things as they are having these discussions. And that's I think that's a you know makes for terrific listening and, and very informative.
0: Yeah, I think well, my you. my favorite was the the, the dy- dynamic in the Philippines episode. That was great. Yeah. <laughs>
1: It went off. <laughs> we, oh yeah,
0: it went we're off, certainly
1: yeah. no stranger to a, to an informed disagreement.
0: Yes, exactly, exactly. Absolutely.
2: <laughs> well, that's it for this episode of Democracy Sausage. I uh, hope you've enjoyed this discussion. Um, you can get in touch with us as you may hear me say from time to time at our uh, email address democracy sausage at anu. Until then, Maria.
0: Thanks for for listening, guys. See you next time.
2: Bye from. Her and it's bye from me or however, Ronnie.
0: It's bye from him and bye from me? Yeah. No, it was, I don't remember.
2: (laughs) See you, Hamish.
1: See you later.